Hello and welcome to the Little Red podcast. Before we get started, just one quick announcement. We're delighted to share the news with you that the Little Red podcast has been shortlisted as a finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards. We're listed in the News and Current Affairs category. So thank you to all our sparkling guests and thank you to you, our loyal listeners, for all your support, your shares, your likes, your comments, your ideas. Please keep them coming. You know where to find us on Twitter or you can find us on our Facebook page as well. This month, Graham's going solo, and I promise you won't be disappointed. We'll be back as a team soon, but for now, on with the show. Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. Today, we're broadcasting from the studios of Radio Adelaide. We're on air thanks to Xinhua Razi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly magazine on labour, civil society and rights. Over the past year, Australia has seen a lively debate about Chinese Communist Party influence in politics, universities and the media. We've had a high-profile investigation by the national broadcaster, a book by Clive Hamilton called Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia, and even laws enacted to counter the threat of foreign influence operations. In all accounts of Communist Party influence, one organisation consistently features, the United Front Work Department. Its origins lie in the 1920s, when the Communist Party formed a united front with the Nationalist Party, or KMT. On the surface, the goal was to build up the KMT. In reality, it was formed to take over, undermine and eventually bring it down. When the Communist Party won in 1949, Mao declared United Front Work to be one of the party's three magic weapons in securing their victory. Today, we're joined by Jerry Groot from the University of Adelaide, Australia's leading authority on the United Front Work Department. Jerry, as we've heard, the United Front goes a long way back. What is the United Front's main mission these days? Well, one of the things with the United Front Department is that its mission is very broad, very uh, extensive, and it continues to grow in importance in the Communist Party system. China is a Communist Party state. The Chinese Communist Party is the ruling power, and we've seen in just recent times that the difference between government and the party has almost evaporated under Xi Jinping, especially now that he's pushed forward these changes to the constitution to allow him to be made president for you know for as long as the party decides, but for all intents and purposes, how long Xi decides. One of the important things about Xi Jinping's uh, rise to power as Secretary General of the Communist Party in China is that almost from the very beginning, he started pushing up the status of the United Front Work Department, which has always been there. Since the 1940s, it was an official department, although the United Front Work as an organising principle became important in the mid-1930s with the struggle with Japan and uh, Soviet slash Comintern worries about the communists maybe not being able to uh, survive and maybe they should put more eggs in the Kuomintang basket, just as they'd done in the 1920s. But even though United Front Work was initially imposed on the Communist Party, its 
been absorbed and integrated and assimilated and now it's an integral part of the way the Communist Party reaches out to all sorts of groups. Historically it was those groups which were outside its key constituencies of soldiers and peasants and factory workers and so it was used to justify liaising with intellectuals, with capitalists, with landlords And what's always been important is the liaising with overseas Chinese. That's often been the key point. The nationalists, you may recall, succeeded in the 1920s under Sun Yat-sen because of the support of overseas Chinese who supported the Republicans and the Republican cause. And the communists almost immediately realised that they also needed to tap into the overseas Chinese for political support, moral support and money and that the influence of overseas Chinese was so important that it also transmitted influence within China itself. So overseas Chinese work has been a key part of United Front work for decades now. I mean, it's interesting you say that United Front work was initially something that was imposed on the party and and that a key part of United Front work is liaising with those aspects both inside China and outside China, that are marginal and in some ways slightly dangerous to the Chinese state. Does that pose, if you like, dangers for United Front cadres themselves in that they're associating with intellectuals, capitalists and rich overseas people? Does that create some tensions with their own work in that, in effect, they're being asked to consort with the enemy? This has been a constant source of tension in the Communist Party, especially when Mao veered leftwards at various stages. So one of the really important aspects of the success of the communists against the nationalists was its united front work with other groups within China and with the Guomindang itself and within the Guomindang using personal relationships and all sorts of groups and associations and building links with capitalists in the cities because they really needed the support of capitalists and university people and well-educated people in the cities to help them cope while they were isolated in the countryside. They needed the money, they needed the resources, they needed the moral support and the political influence of people in the cities. And after the Communist Party gained power, you could see after a while that Mao didn't quite trust those communists who had been so influential in winning that sort of support in the cities, in the so-called white areas, Mm. as opposed to those communists who stayed pure, in inverted commas, in the red areas, in the Soviet areas and in the areas under Communist Party control. He always was a little bit suspicious that those people who had been so effective in working with the nationalists and the capitalists and the bourgeoisie and the intellectuals might have been captured or influenced by those people they were dealing with. And so that all came to a head, particularly in the Cultural Revolution, where you can tell that nearly everybody who was involved with United Front work, and even if they'd been lauded for their success in this in the 1940s, came under duress in the Cultural Revolution between after 1964, and uh, some died as a result, Liu Xiaoqi being a, the most famous example, and Zhou Enlai being another. 
it's fascinating that it sort of started with the nationalists in, and in many ways I think the nationalists still seem to be front and centre of United Front work because for an atheist party, the Communist Party refers to a lot of things as sacred but the number one sacred thing is reunification with Taiwan. I'd like to take you to task there, Graham, yes, for, using the, for the, using the word reunification <laughs> which is one of the great successes of the Communist Party's United Front work and propaganda work in promoting the idea that we are going to reunify China for Western ears mm. when Tongyi is about unification because, of course, the Communist Party has never occupied or controlled Taiwan, so it can't be a case of controlling it or regaining sovereignty because they've never exercised it. To get back to the specifics of what United Front work in-country involves, what comes under the auspices of, say, the Chinese embassy in Australia? What sort of things would they be expected to oversee and encourage? Well, they'll be in expected to encourage all sorts of Chinese organisations, especially ones with direct links to them and ones which have people who are very keen on upholding the party's line of the moment on any particular issue. So creating new associations is one thing, but you need to have some way of harnessing them, and that's where the Australian, Australian Council for the Peaceful Unification of China, it's important to note that in English they say the peaceful reunification of China, but it's the peaceful unification of China. That has become the overarching organisation body for helping coordinate numerous smaller bodies. This is a really important body in Australia in that it seems to have developed into the main organisational vehicle for liaising with and directing many, many of these smaller organisations. And anybody who tries to understand the nature of the Chinese community, if you inverted commas, uh, will soon discover there's no such thing as one community. There are numerous, numerous communities amongst the Chinese, and they're split along all sorts of lines. They're split along where they came from in China, sometimes down to the very village, but generally to particular regions, which language they speak, where they were in Southeast Asia if they came here via migration to Malaysia or Southeast Asia or China or Cambodia or wherever they came from, religious lines, and sometimes particular interests what's become really, really apparent in recent times is these professional associations. The United Front Work Department actually encourages that. The great beauty outside of China, where because inside China they are tightly controlled and forced into one corporatist set of organisations, but outside of China it gives a multiplicity of voices and allows the representation of all sorts of special interests. And one of the big advantages of those is that these smaller organisations can be invoked to give legitimacy to particular claims or in, as endorsing particular claims about China or Chinese policy or whatever the Communist Party wants at a, at a, at a given point. And creating these is a piece of cake in a place like Australia. So you can create very specific ones uh, for example, you could have um, the Australian Association for Buddhists from Ningxia. So one of the advantages of that is it rep could represent all those people or it could only represent a couple of people because a lot of these groups are actually 
created by entrepreneurs who try to parlay these so-called community associations into political influence, both in Australia, or they're doing it deliberately to curry favour with the United Front Department and get benefits that way. But if you have something specific, say on Chinese Muslims or Tibetans, something like that, then if there's a discussion in Australia about policy in China regarding Muslims, then the tendency of the Australian media is to so-called balance. So they'll go and look for a community organisation to balance the claims of someone else. And then they naturally come to these sorts of organisations, which then endorse the party line. It's a wonderful advantage in many respects for the for United Front Department because it allows all sorts of plausible deniability. Plausibility and plausible deniability become really important in this case about influence. And often you only end up finding out that they're somehow United Front related if you see the same people popping up in different organisations and then you note their closeness to the embassy. Or they get nominated for something like overseas representative for the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. And I think we have seen some good examples of new associations being set up in order to undermine existing ones and have the centre of gravity move to the new ones, which are much more closely aligned to the embassies and the consulates, uh, taking over old, established, overseas Chinese-related bodies. And sometimes it only takes one activist to get involved in one of these bodies to be the person who actually does all the doing, which voluntary organisations have so much trouble doing at the best of times, and one organiser who is clear about what they want to do things like use a social service body and an old established social service organisation to make submissions to the Australian White Paper on foreign policy in order to criticise Australia's stance on the South China Seas and uh, attitude towards America. You know, sometimes that's all it takes, just one activist in an organisation, mm. let alone taking them over holus bolus, which has also happened. How interesting. One of the things about United Front work is it's, it's quite nebulous in many ways in that it sometimes seems to be quite hard to say, is that United Front work? Is it propaganda work? So when you look at an example such as the meeting between Ma Ying-jeou and Xi Jinping, which seemed to be a, a tremendous own goal in terms of the unification of China, how can you tell, if you like, whether something's United Front work or other categories of the party state? Well, United Front work is the responsibility of every Chinese Communist Party member and especially every Chinese Communist Party member who has an official position. They are supposed to make friends and influence those friends to take on the official positions of the Communist Party. Now, that all sounds very general and doesn't even... That sounds fairly benign, and in many cases it can be benign, but it's used to do things like change wording so that reunification is used in translations rather than unification, mm. which would be an immediate propaganda win. I've the just fallen into the trap. Indeed. And uh, other examples, so, so the propaganda department and the United Front Department, they all are linked and overlap to some degree and they all have to take a bit of cognizance of what the other is doing and what their goals are at any given time so that they don't undermine them. But even people in ideological work have to take account of United Front work. Mm. But you mentioned the, the rise of United Front under Xi Jinping and, and one of the things that have jumped out of your work when I read it was uh, that 
one, it has its own leading small group, which everything seems to do these days, but it's also expanded its staffing by over 40,000 staff. And I work a fair bit with central agencies and the one thing that constrains their work is lack of staff. So as an example, the Department of Foreign Aid, which is meant to manage foreign aid for China's entire enormous development assistance program across the world, has less than 100 staff. So how on earth do you get 40,000 staff and what are all these people doing? That's a really good question. And it would be really important to know exactly where those staff have been distributed because United Front Work covers all sorts of areas from liaising with non-party intellectuals, from uniting with religious believers. So we've got the official corporatist organisations for the Catholic Church. The Protestant churches have all been amalgamated into three self-patriotic movement, the official Buddhist association and the official Taoist association. They all have to report to the United Front Department and the United Front Department determines policies for them. So the Huangpu Military Association and so forth. The All-China Federation of Industry and Commerce is also a United Front body which liaises with all sorts of business people and we've seen manifestations of that in recent times in Australia. But what's important to note there is that any business person of any substance in China is obliged to be a member of at least the local organisation of the Federation. And to not be a member, especially after being invited to be a member, is a political act mm. which will result in retribution. So effectively, membership is compulsory. But lots of people join willingly because it's a very good networking area and these business people can then get close to government. They can get into the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, the Zhengxie, or the CPPCC, and that gives status. It gives some degree of protection, and it gives access. And there's a bit of a quid pro quo. Now, the higher up the ladder they go, the higher up the leadership system they go, from the local association to the provincial association to the national association or the national federation they have to become increasingly politically reliable. So nobody gets to the top of these organisations without being either Communist Party members or almost able to apply for Communist Party membership should they want to. Sometimes they're dissuaded from doing that because their nominal independence is seen as more beneficial. And just as importantly, because of the political connotations of those federation organisations the Federation has a double nameplate policy. So in many cases, you'll see in English on the office of one of these buildings, a Chamber of Commerce. Mm. So foreigners like to do dealings with Chambers of Commerce. They don't want to do something with the All-China Federation of Industry and Commerce and the CPPCC. The two nameplate policy is ubiquitous through the system and uh, lots of foreigners in particular think they're dealing with a government-related entity or a civil society entity mm. when they're dealing with a, a very complex entity which is controlled and directed and administered and surveyed constantly 
by the Communist Party United Front Work Department. Well, that's one thing I've, I've found quite fascinating in some cases in Australia is that particularly the Four Corners documentary last year focused on two Chinese billionaires. And both of them, when the question was posed to them about the United Front Work Department, both of them literally ran a mile and, and I believe in the case of one of them denied that they'd even heard of uh, such a United Front Work Department. How um, credible is this? Are they, are they hiding behind the two nameplate system or are they just being disingenuous? There's zero credibility to the claim that they don't know what the United Front Department is doing with them because the United Front Work Department representatives, the leadership is... Uh, makes itself present at all the important meetings and functions and it's the United Front Work Department which determines who is able to stand for elections if there are substantial elections or who is to be appointed for any position and that sponsorship by the United Front Work Department is in itself an enormous benefit to any business person because it tells the rest of the party system that this person is reliable and they should help this person. Amongst the basic principles of United Front work are making friends, is the first one. One of the subsidiary principles is looking after their material interests. That's a basic working principle of United Front work. Historically, it meant, for example, giving people protection during the war, or helping them to go underground when their life was in danger, or supporting the children of United Front allies who had been murdered by the Guomindang or something like that. These days it means helping United Front allies get the right contacts and the right contracts. So it is totally disingenuous for any Chinese business person who is the member of any of these chambers of commerce slash part of local organisations of the Old China Federation of Industry and Commerce to say they don't know what United Front Work Department is because they will have only been too happy to glad hand them and meet them and be endorsed by them. To phrase that question another way, um, there was a newspaper editor once who said the party was like God in that uh, it was everywhere but it was never visible. Why are they denying it? Is it because they're worried that being openly associated with United Front activities will reduce their own credibility and reduce their own usefulness, if you like? The problem for Chinese business people is Western understandings of what their relationship with the Communist Party is. Within China, it's an advantage to be lauded by the United Front Work Department because it shows that you are protected and endorsed by the Communist Party. So no, that's not true. There are some business people who have tried to get around the system by only dealing with other people in a particular sort of cohort. And two examples which come to mind are one of Muslim business people who wanted only to deal with other Muslim business people because they felt that way they could avoid being engaged in corruption or having to deal with corrupt officials, and Christian ones in places like Wenzhou. But part of the recent crackdown on religious believers, because religious believers are also a key part of United Front work, seems to have been directed, it's difficult to say, but it seems to have been directed at precisely those sorts of people who were trying to be a bit more independent of the state system. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting 
question for United Front work in that under Hu Jintao and even under Jiang Zemin, religion was tolerated because it seemed to, if you like, lead to more governable populations. So it was to some degree tolerated. But uh, you've highlighted a headline, I think it was of the Central uh, Discipline Inspection Committee's newspaper that bluntly said, no party member shall believe in religion or words to that effect. How do actions like this by the party state, such as forcing Muslims to eat during Ramadan, forcing them to shave off their beards or removing crosses from churches, how do acts like this by the party state affect United Front work? And does the United Front push back, if you like, against these sorts of acts that in a way make their work impossible? Ah, now you've touched on something really, really complicated. The basic principle of religious work for United Front work carders is there is no such thing as a small thing in religious work, meaning that any small incident has the potential to become a major incident if not handled correctly and that we have to avoid inflaming religious tensions wherever possible whether that's speed-ups about halal food. I can't think of any good examples right at the top of my head, but there have been, for example, quite significant riots and unrest where ordinary Han Chinese who are non-religious have deliberately or have been perceived as having deliberately humiliated Hui, which is the Muslim Chinese, by doing things with pork and other things considered otherwise haram, right? And there's a tremendous online vitriol amongst many ordinary Chinese about halal certification, just as there has been in Australia. And this has often created enormous difficulties for carders on the ground trying to smooth relationships between particular groups. However, whatever that principle says, the most important policy for any United Front work cadre is we are to implement the guiding policies of the party, whatever those party policies are at the time. So there's a very interesting and confusing lot of things happening at the moment which contradict what we would normally think of as standard United Front work practice within China, particularly to do with religion and language. And those include the increasing criminalisation of the use of Tibetan and similarly with a sudden and dramatic increase in attempts to assimilate Uyghurs, Kazakhs and one or two other small groups of people who are Muslim but not ethnically Chinese as opposed to the Hui. And I'm yet to come to a clear understanding of what's going on But in the history of United Front work, we have seen such changes before. So if I use a rough historical analogy, back in the 1940s, when the support of business and shopkeepers and intellectuals was very important to the very survival of the Communist Party, then there were all sorts of policies in place to protect their interests. And those of you who still remember any Chinese ideology and know about Mao's slogan of new democracy, it promised the the mutual coexistence of different classes 
and different forms of ownership for a very long time. And we discovered in reality what that meant was, when asked, actually, Zhou Enlai famously mumbled something like, oh, that very long time might be 20 years, and Liu Xiaoqi, I think, don't quote me, I think he said 26 years, and unfortunately in July 1956, Mao said, we have achieved the basic transition to socialism, and therefore all these compromise policies no longer worked, no, were no longer operative, and it was now assimilation and confiscation. So do you think under Xi Jinping we've, again, to draw another parallel with the Maoist era, we've reached that point? It seems to be that way, that she is so confident that the social, political, cultural and economic dominance of Han China, for want of a better description, mm. is such that they can now force assimilation and that might explain why those 40,000 people were employed to help push this transition through. But even though a lot of United Front work is actually quite public, there's a lot of access. An ordinary person who reads Chinese can find out an enormous amount about United Front work if only they go to the trouble to look. This aspect I don't think is covered publicly. That's fascinating um, because, I mean, some of it is so heavy-handed. There was one policy to give cash bonuses to Uyghurs who married Chinese. I mean, it's as clumsy as that. I mean, can policies like this ever be effective? They can sometimes have short-term wins. Often those wins are ephemeral and propaganda without a long-term consequence. The danger is that it creates more pushback and Many, many Uyghurs who, at least based on my understanding, which is fairly limited on this area, were reasonably content to go on as the way things were because they realised that their conditions were much better than their cousins over the borders in Central Asia, now are more likely to be torn between, what the hell can I lose? We were doing the right thing and now we're being punished for it. And the problem with this issue is that United Front Work and the securitization of policy towards Uyghurs and Tibetans, either at odds or at the moment they are one and the same. And securitization has meant a huge increase in the number of police in these places and policing and detention of up to 800,000 people in, in re-education camps. And it's a case of if you use securitization, then it's like... If you have a hammer, then every problem is a nail, right? Mm. And people will people are very scared, but it's unlikely to work in the long run. Yeah, and I think most of the evidence is showing that. But when you talk about coercion, uh, my mind immediately turns to one of, of Deng Xiaoping's most famous quotes about United Front work when he declared that some triads were patriotic. Does the United Front still work with criminal organisations? And if they do... Isn't there a danger of these criminal organisations, if you like, wanting some quid pro quo from the United Front? Well, it's, it's interesting in the sense that one of the key propaganda points after 1949, especially in the 1960s uh, and 70s, was that China had eliminated all criminal gangs. But we saw from the early 1980s that criminal gangs were operating with impunity in 
southern China and most famously manifested in cases of luxury cars being stolen in Hong Kong, going down to the harbour, being put on uh, these incredibly fast jet boats and then being whisked away over the maritime border and to disappear in southern China. I was amazed the first time I went to China to see Lexus cars in Shanghai with the number plates of the Nanjing Southern Military District. This at a time when not a single car had been imported legally from Japan or Mercedes's from Germany. To those of us who don't know how venerable you are, Jerry, when was that? Uh, that was 88. So I, I saw China for the first time when rationing was still in force and when uh, Shanghai only had a three or four restaurants. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It is hard to imagine these days. I was there too, I must admit. This cooperation with triads has been historical for a start. The nationalists famously have been excoriated for the way that Chiang Kai-shek worked with the Green Gang in Shanghai in April 1927 to, to murder suspected communist leftists and union organisers. But uh, the Communist Party itself sometimes found a need to work with these groups, these triad groups in the countryside in order to get access to resources and to minimise the cost of having to fight them with the girl Aohui and so forth. So the advantage of criminal gangs is they, are, they often have access to information and to people that is much more difficult for anybody else. So that's information is a, is a key benefit. And secondly, they have people who are willing to go and do things like chop critics, which has happened in Hong Kong a number of times where critics of mainland policies or mainland officials have been attacked in their offices by people with cleavers, sometimes fatally. And those cases are very rarely solved. I'm shocked. Most recently in Taiwan, we've seen the use of triads to try to harass and intimidate so-called Taiwan independence movement activists. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Hong Kong because in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere, it seems at the moment the main agents of United Front influence are billionaires, so they're the very wealthiest of society. And I think in another of your articles, you uh, pointed out that in America's House of Congress, there are no billionaires, whereas in China's National People Congress, you have a hundred of them. So I guess, what is the downside of, of having these extremely wealthy individuals as your, uh, if you like, your main point of influence in a country? And what are the upsides? Why are they using these people? Historically, these successful business people had quite extensive guangxiwangs, right? Their connections were very wide and deep, which was one of the reasons why they had become successful. And the Communist Party sought to use those for its own purposes. And what we have here, in, in a sense, is, especially in the Hong Kong and Macau case, but particularly Hong Kong, United Front practice lagging behind social change. So what's happened in Hong Kong was for a long time, this symbiotic relationship between business people and the Communist Party across the border was mutually beneficial. The business people got access to business opportunities on the other side of the border and got richer. And the Communist Party got political influence and intelligence, just 
general information and uh, the power of having these people represented in the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conferences as part of promoting the one country, two systems policy by which the Communist Party pledged to use United Front work to gently reincorporate Hong Kong, Macau into the motherland with the idea that eventually Taiwan would also accept the success of this integration and also become part of the motherland. However, getting back to the business people, this idea of having these influential figures with these very extensive connections, which also involve mutual obligation and uh, reward, right? So people that have benefited from their relationship with the business people then feel obliged that they should do what the business people want and you know, follow their line. This was the really important aspect of United Front work in China in the 1940s and 50s, and it's very much dependent on the special nature of Chinese social relations and the role of positive models and, uh, to some extent, negative models. And what's happened in Hong Kong, though, is that the economic interests of these business people has diverged dramatically from ordinary people, and they are the big beneficiaries of the stagnant wages and the incredibly high housing costs because these billionaires are the people who are keeping wages down and selling incredibly expensive housing, which they get because of sweetheart arrangements with the local government, in which they have a disproportionate say. And so when the umbrella movement happened, it was a bit of a shock for the Communist Party to see that so many people had become so alienated from the Communist Party that they were prepared to go out on the street and protest. And their attempts to use these business people to scold and encourage and chide and plead with these people to give up was shown to be ineffective. So this model wasn't working anymore. And we've, we've seen in the last year or so a dramatic restatement of emphasis of those people doing Hong Kong work and Macau work to a lesser extent. Macau has always been much more compliant than Hong Kong, perhaps because there are more triads there. They are going to do much more to encourage young Hong Kong people to come and study in the mainland, to do work experience in the mainland, and to visit the mainland in order to build up the ties with the ancestral motherland, or the ancestral land, we can call it motherland, but ancestral land, in the hope of winning them over that way. But in the short term, the key causes of unhappiness, economic stagnation, of wages, not the economy as such, but wages and the impossibility of getting reasonably priced housing is the problem which they haven't actually addressed directly. <laughs> Both sides of the border, really. Both sides of the border, yes. <laughs> When you talk about the rise of the United Front on, under Xi Jinping, it, it, to me it seems incredible. I mean, it now ranks above propaganda and above organisation, which are, are two parts of the party state that exist on every standing committee right down to the county level. So when I'm thinking of them working out of embassies, nominally run by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, can the ambassador in a given embassy actually control the United Front work going on in a country? Or is he outranked, if you like, by the United Front in the hierarchy? That's a very technical question, Graham. <laughs> and it would depend entirely on the ranking of the different officials within a particular diplomatic posting. Mm. However, every ambassador now has to take account of the new imperatives of United Front work, 
And what they can't do, which was historically what often happened, was United Front work was neglected, even though Jiang Zemin stressed United Front work and helped push the big changes to the World China Federation of Industry and Commerce and so forth, or at least they happened under him. Many of these changes under Xi Jinping were already in train under Hu Jintao, but they didn't come to prominence until just after Xi came to power. So Xi is getting the credit for things which were already happening. Back in the embassy, now because of the 2015 United Front Work conference, and it's making absolutely crystal clear that United Front Work is really important and that it's been extended to the new immigrants from China in places like Australia. It's been extended to all Chinese students studying abroad, not just particular cohorts who were sponsored by the Chinese government. That means that every embassy and every consulate now has to somehow show that they are trying to implement the policies of the party in regards to United Front Work. It's effectively made them KPIs for every Chinese official in every diplomatic area, although, of course, once they're in a particular area, they might be divvied up in different ways. Theoretically, everyone is responsible. That's fascinating. But to kind of press you on that point, given that they're KPIs and, and you know, I've, I've worked within the Chinese government, what's to stop an ambassador from kind of taking the approach of Dafa Renwu, just taking it as a, a task and just filling out the form to please his superiors in Beijing? Or has the nature of United Front work changed under Xi Jinping? Has there been a thoroughgoing transformation that goes beyond emphasis? I think in the present political context, with the wind direction from Xi Jinping being absolutely clear, with Xi Jinping himself endorsing these policies, publicly appearing at numerous United Front functions, appearing at the conference, creating this small leadership group of United Front work, it shows to every official downstream that if she is taking it seriously, we should too. It's not like under Hu Jintao where it seemed not to be very important and where it was easier for officials to pay lip service to United Front work. Now they're going to be called to account because especially with the anti-corruption campaign and all these other imperatives... It's a case of to be seen to be not doing something will be seen to be a political act. This historically has often been a, a way of getting people to do things. In it. If you're seen to be not doing something, that's political. Mm. It's not mere passivity. I mean, passivity has been a problem. Getting the right people, quality people into United Front work has been a problem. Most notoriously in religious affairs work, getting atheist communists who hate religion to do liaison work with religious believers is, you know, has often been a recipe for minor disasters and sometimes not so minor disasters. But now it's been made a career option. Given that over the last couple of weeks we've seen this tremendous consolidation of power by Xi Jinping and the abolition of the term limits, what do you see as the future of United Front work under this in this new era, if you like, of, of Xi Jinping? Do you, do you see United Front work becoming even more central to China's rejuvenation, to use the, uh, the words? I think his emphasis on this massive One Belt, One Road, or the BRI initiative, means that there's going to be a lot of emphasis on Chinese associations over broad getting behind this and finding all different ways to support it and encourage 
politicians and vested interests and business people all around the world that they have influence over to also support it. So that's a really big, that will continue and probably intensify as long as the whole one belt, one road doesn't run out of steam. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Graham. Thanks to our guest, Jerry Groot, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim, who's here in spirit. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Jerry's work on the United Front. This episode was recorded in the studios of Radio Adelaide and edited by Buffy Gorilla with support from Xinhua Razi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danto. Bye for now.